Hey, everyone, and happy Friday. My name is Ryan Catherwood. It is August the 4th, 2023, Friday, 1130 Eastern, regular alumnus time. I'm here with Chris Marshall. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Good, Ryan. How are you? Good. It's been a good week. Uh, we've even exciting uh, announcement. We have our first sponsor of Protopia, Chris. Uh, uh, excuse me. Protopia is our sponsor, which I'm going to introduce. But the fact that we even have a sponsor yeah, of Alumless <laughs> is pretty cool. So I'm really excited to announce that Protopia is our sponsor. And the role of AI in today's advancement shop is on the front burner for every senior leader these days. It's not just ChatGPT. For the last three years, Protopia has helped university partners like Duke and the London School of Economics scale engagement with alumni and donors using AI. Protopia's technology enables simple, scalable engagement across the four case modes for engagement without ever asking a student, alum, or donor to sign up for anything new. It's a lead gen tool for advancement while also a valuable resource for the campus community. Visit protopia.co forward slash alumless for more information and to check out their uh, unique technology. Chris, we have a sponsor. Pretty cool. I think it's a pretty cool thing. I, I hope people don't criticize us for selling out, Ryan, to be honest with you. But no, you know, I don't think that's going to be. I actually believe in this particular product. So I'm, I'm totally fine with it being associated with our brand as well. But I, I want to just add one last thing is credit to you because you've built this show. You've built this following. Um, you've done most of not all of the work. I think I've written one of the scripts, Ryan. You've done the other 30. Yeah. <laughs> so kudos to you. Congrats. Well, I mean, you know, for those who are familiar, I'm an independent consultant. I created my own LLC a few years ago. It's not on my LinkedIn profile, but I do work with you and you introduced me to the Washburn McGoldrick folks and we yep. do a lot of work together. And for the last few years, I've worked with Max and the team at Protopia as well. And so it is kind of like worlds colliding, uh, but in a good way. And I am the same way that you are. Like I wouldn't talk about Protopia or, or recommend we sponsor or have a partnership around the sponsorship if it wasn't worthy of everyone's notice. So yeah, I, I, I always say, we've talked about this, I, I stay agnostic on platforms, but when there is a tool that can solve a problem, as long as it's the right problem to be solved, we'll, I'll recommend products all the time. So yeah, thrilled to have Protopia with us. Well, we're glad to have everyone joining us today. We are live streaming on LinkedIn and YouTube. Uh, we have a great show for you today with our special guest and friend, Brandon Busby from the University of North Texas. Brandon is the vice president for university advancement there. And uh, we've known Brandon for some years now, so really excited to have Brandon on the show. If you have any questions for Brandon or Chris or myself, I definitely hope you'll pop them in the chat. And that's actually the comment section on the LinkedIn event. Uh, so if you can uh, pop your questions in for any of us during the course of the first 30 minutes, or please introduce yourself, tell us where you're listening in from, what university you're, you represent, and we're glad to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so Chris, I, I thought we could open up the conversation before we bring Brandon out about, you know, what do you think vice presidents of advancement are thinking about in their first year on the job? Uh, how uh, do you think about someone with Brandon's experience who Brandon comes from the alumni engagement side of the shop, kind of, and he'll explain a bit more about the global networks unit during our conversation, uh, that he led at, at Denver, university of Denver, but, 
Um, from your perspective, you know, what coming from the engagement side of the shop, how might that influence, you know, someone, a VP's perspective on leading a full advancement program? First of all, I, I think I know exactly what's on Brandon's mind to start with the first part of your question, which is how do I turn off this fire hose? Because it's I'm sure he's just bombarded with everything in the world he's trying to fix. So turning it off and focusing it on the right things is what typically first time leaders do in roles like that. But on the on the second part, which is the background that he has, I, I love it. I think it's a great thing for our industry. I love when people come from outside our industry into it, but I love when people come from the alumni side into a development fundraising focused role because they bring just that perspective. And, and you started, you know, I, I've been in the business for 22 years. I, I think it was around before me, but I started to see it 2010 to 2015. People like Scott Morey uh, taking roles like at USC in the campaign and then going to Carnegie Mellon, Mark Davis, the leading alumni and going over to UC Santa Cruz, Armin Fsai, who worked with mm -hmm. Brandon, came out of the alumni side. And now he's the head at University of Chicago. So there's a path and you see this happening um, increasingly, which I think is just a really good thing for our industry. So I think it's going to be great. I'd love to hear his thoughts on it too. We'll bring Brandon in. Yeah, I think it's great too. And I think I often wonder whether or not alumni leaders uh, often think that it's a possibility to be the vice yeah. president of advancement because there's such often a bias towards those with sort of significant histories of development right. work. And yep. I think we'll ask Brandon, I think he'd say that, you know, that's pretty important, right? To acquire some uh, development work over the course yeah, of your tenure. Yeah, but uh, let's bring Brandon out to the show. Hello, Brandon Busby. How are you? I'm well, Ryan. Thanks. How are you? It's good Ryan, the last you, time man. I saw Brandon, he was leaving an elevator in New York at the Case Summit at 10 p.m. to go out for a jog. And I went, what the heck are wow. you doing? <laughs> and he said, got to do it. And he's pulled <laughs> it out. Like I, I caught Brandon at the other end for a 7 a.m. coffee. So he's up wow. early and, and jogging late, right? Uh, well, it's great to have you, Brandon. Happy Friday. Uh, I guess I'd like to start by you know, posing you the same question that we began that I posed to Chris. And it's, what are you thinking about? in your first year and, and how does your experience coming up kind of through the engagement side of advancement, how has it informed your thinking, if at all, there as you've uh, taken over at uh, University of North Texas? Sure. I appreciate the opportunity, Ryan. And I don't know if I should be offended or honored to be number 30. I'll assume it's a, it's a place of privilege and honor to be number 30. <laughs> uh, so I'll yeah. wear that badge with pride. Um, but, uh, you know, when I, I'll take the second part of that first, which is how is engagement really shaped the way that I've I've thought in, in the path as I'm coming into UNT. I was so blessed and lucky in my early days to come. I, it was 2010, came into the work of alumni engagement from the nonprofit space. So working for a small nonprofit, um, which, man, if you can uh, cut your teeth in small nonprofit work, you just get your hands on everything and you make messes and the implications are not as <laughs> dire uh, but, um, what a great way to enter into the work of advancement. So when I came into the university space, I remember at UC San Diego, my eyes were just so big because I couldn't believe it was a single person's job to process a gift or a team of four to do annual giving. Um, I was just blown away consistently, consistently with the scale and size but in the midst of that, Armin, who is now at the University of Chicago, um, worked with at Denver as well, um, he was in the midst of innovation and evolution and revolution by 
taking the alumni association at UC San Diego from a dues paying membership organization to an all inclusive model. And he pulled in a guy that knew nothing about membership to flip the model on its head, which was, it was, it was brilliant because I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and it meant I wasn't tied to convention, maybe in the same ways that someone that came up, you know, purely through the call center and then the alumni association as assistant director of membership. And so from the early days, my earliest days in advancement, um, I was told to embrace three things. Number one, ambition. Um, Ar Armin taught me, be ambitious, be bold, do things that matter and make an impact. Number two, clear the road. In higher education, we, we have a lot of um, reasons to say this is a hurdle, this is red tape. And those may be true and real, but sometimes they can be in your own imagination. Um, and so, you know, plowing the road in, in some regard is, is a path towards innovation and then work your tail off is the third thing. And so taking what I had on the nonprofit side, which is a relationship orientation, a relationship centeredness in the work that I was doing, I was raising money from friends and family to earn, earn my own salary in the small nonprofit. And then pivoting into the alumni engagement space and realizing, oh, the relationship is somewhere in between the institution and myself, and I can facilitate a deeper connection in the institution. Then fast forward five years, we've flipped the model at UC San Diego on its head and learned so much about how the work of alumni engagement needed to change, needed to evolve in the midst of a, a radically changing economy and a midst of radically changing expectations for what alumni engagement was providing to its constituents had a chance to parlay that into the University of Denver. And again, by the time I was leaving Denver and starting to transition into UNT, um, it, it was all about relationships the whole time. Um, you know, I know we'll, we'll probably get a chance to talk about technology and tools and AI, but there is an, and there is a science and that science is getting more sophisticated and sharper in the space of advancement. I am all about it, but there's also an art to this work. Um, which is the trust you build, um, the way in which you communicate ideas, the way in which you navigate the complexity of bureaucracy. Um, all of that, um, I realized as those skills are sharpened, you have an ability to be at the edge, be in the middle of transformational ideas in higher education, whether that's advancing research, whether it's the, like the mountain campus we were able to establish at the University of Denver, or whether it's imagining new ways to raise support for first-generation college students at a Hispanic-serving, minority-serving institution like the University of North Texas, I just got an appetite at Denver to realize this work can fundamentally affect and scale uh, the, the greatest aspirations of an institution. And so coming in, Again, eyes as wide as they've ever been um, at an institution with 46,000 students um, and the opportunity to, to see philanthropy fundamentally impact the lives of students that thought higher education may not even be an option for them has been absolutely incredible. So I've been leaning into that and growing into that. And, you know, we can talk about form and function and all the pieces that kind of fall out from that. But um, I'm so grateful because that stream of lessons has been consistent throughout. Be ambitious, 
clear the road, let nothing stand in your way and work your tail off and, and you'll be able to do big things and, and keep relationships at the center of it all. Yeah. Yeah. The focus on relationships, really, that's a part of the key narrative. I'm sure you've been thinking about that and the application of it in your new role. And perhaps that's one of the similarities in terms of how you've been thinking about your work at DU versus the work at UNT. But I have to imagine these are very different schools, right? The University of Denver, small, private, uh, medium-sized, private, not small, right? University of North Texas, huge, large public institution. Uh, talk us through what have been your observations, the similarities, the differences when it comes to the two universities, how you've been sizing things up. Yeah, uh, a lot of differences on the surface. Um, uh, you could look from enrollment to tuition to student population to geography to all of that. But I would say um, one thing that I learned uh, at Denver and have have appreciated here at UNT working for really incredible leaders um, matters a lot. I knew Armin, I worked with Armin for five years at, at San Diego. I knew what I was getting in a vice president at, at Denver. Um, but sitting down with the chancellor at Denver, who at that time was Rebecca Chop, with her expressing deep ambition and aspirations for the alumni community and seeing just a different effort going into the alumni work. There were seven different alumni directors in the 10 years preceding when I got to campus. And so a lot of um, fits and starts in terms of strategy. Um, but I learned so much from her and what I got uh, from, from Chancellor Chop was um, we were in a car riding up to Fort Collins, Colorado for an alumni event. And, you know, it's one of my first events, you know, new guy on campus anxious you want really to make an impression and got there and the alumni turnout was just not great it was not something that i and it was one of my first alumni events it was not what i would have felt great about and on the car ride back home and this is coming from a seasoned president she said um you know any of this work worth doing is going to take time and consistency and to have that freedom from leadership to do the work right to take your time. And I think we know, we all know this being close to the work that the institutions that have done this best, it may not be they have the most innovative programs. Often they've just been consistent. They've been consistent and their constituency knows what to expect from them. And um, so I appreciate, I have appreciated that at, at, at Denver, got a chance to work with Chancellor Jeremy Hafner, who just a dynamic, incredible leader. And then here coming to work for President Smotrisk, who seven years into his tenure here at UNT, was a president at UNLV before. Um, just a, a patience for the work of advancement, which is the difference between microwaving a steak and smoking a steak. You, you just get different results when you allow for a little bit of time to do it right and, and to let, let, the, let the flavors kind of seep in, let the anchors kind of get set so that you can get sustainable operations out of the advancement enterprise. So both are emerging R1 institutions. That's a whole interesting dynamic. Uh, DU became an R1 this past year, just at the beginning of 2022. UNT became an R1 in 2015. There's energy and excitement around the emergence as an R1 and, and the whole shape of the, the institution. So yes, a lot of differences on the surface, but committed leadership, 
um, and energetic enthusiasm around not only the academy, but the work of engagement as well. Yeah. Uh, great stuff, Brandon. Thank you. So Chris, as you sort of listening to Brandon sizing up the, what he's been going through, thinking about the two different institutions, what do you think, you know, Brandon's likely encountering there in terms of the differences of approach and alumni engagement or just the different thinking that comes with the two different universities? So you're going to make me make a prediction of some a school I don't know much about. So, Brandon, tell me it's if true. I'm right on this. <laughs> uh, but typically, if you could leave a private institution to a public, smaller, more intimate, more residential experience to one that could have some of that, but also may have some people coming and going, you, you, you have... Um, I would describe it as a different evolutionary stage of where a program might be in their alumni engagement function. So at, at a DU, which is, I love that University of Denver calls themselves DU. I just throw that out there. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, probably a little further along and, and uh, we could take other schools and put them further down the path, you know, like a Princeton or other places that have been doing it for hundreds of years. UNT is probably a little earlier on. So I think about it in terms of evolutionary stage, institutional commitment, not just resource wise, but I'm talking about whether or not alumni engagement has been important to your current president versus the presidents before him and so on back. Uh, that's a big deal of, of what stage you're in, first of all. And then, of course, resources, how much how many staff you have and how, what is it? How many alumni do you have per each of those staff is going to be a lot different at a private than at a public institution uh, budget, the lines and so forth are the places that I typically see when it changes like you have. How would I do, Brandon? Was I close? <laughs> pretty close. Yeah. I, yes, I think you're pretty right on there, Chris. Right. Good enough. Way to step up to the plate there. Chris. Right. I thought that All was right. good. He's being kind. It's probably nothing. Like I said, he's just being nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon. So you've been there for about a year and, uh, maybe just better than a year now. And what surprised you the most about the unique challenges facing the evolution of your advancement program there? So uh, I think one thing that can be said of most public institutions, with the exception of maybe a lot, a number of large land grants, kind of the flagship of systems, most publics were fairly late to the game in the work of advancement. Privates had to be on top right. of this. And ironically, University of, I don't want to get myself in trouble here. I think University of Michigan, um, uh, was early early in that game, right? So publics, there were publics that were early on. Um, but uh, the moment they decided to jump in um, was not the only determining factor of success. It was also, who did they hire to do that? Um, because sometimes it was the president knew a dean who was transitioning and or a football coach came in as the primary advancement person. And so when they started as one factor, how they started as another factor. And at UNT, it was late, late to the game, probably uh, 80s um, that really started in earnest, but it was academicians that were coming in, kind of learning how to lead. And it was only until recent history in the past 10 years that anyone was even hired from with an advancement background, um, with a professional fundraising background. And I think that's an important moment um, in the life of an institution. And, and I think what surprised me was, in one regard, um, how uh, the organization had tolerated um, systems that anyone outside of the system would say, wow, how are you, how are we making this work? Um, you know, you, you learn to manage a, a jalopy, you know, <laughs> if, you, if that's all you've been driving. 
Um, and, and it just, all that to say, um, I was surprised at the amount of work we had to do to kind of take apart parts of the engine, um, advancement services, really looking at data in a fundamentally different way. I would say this moment in time, though, is interesting because in a lot of ways, learning not only from your peers and colleagues, but technology has flattened a lot of what have what tr would traditionally have been substantial upstarting cost for getting it getting this done right. I think both from the vendor side, vendors have become more sophisticated in terms of their ability to help bring advancement shops back up to speed, but also. Um, I think the advancement learning space from peers, colleagues through organizations like Case and others has just accelerated the yeah, ability right. to iterate more quickly. And so version 1.1, 1.2, 2.0 an any advancement shop that may be later to the game can be accelerated. And that's really the path that I've been on. And, and I've been in one regard surprised at how much work we had to go back and do, but on the other hand, surprised at how quickly we could get in and do it. Because as things like machine learning, business intelligence, data analytics have become more global functions, we are seeing more experienced advancement professionals that can come in and really lend an expertise quickly and bring you up to speed. And that talent has become relatively more affordable to accelerate your ability to do, to do that. Whereas 10 years ago, I mean, it was only elite institutions that were hiring PhDs in data science to build their own sophisticated donor modeling platforms. I mean, now you can buy that capacity at a fraction of the cost of hiring right. a full-time employee. So yeah. those were a couple of things that surprised me in year one. There's been a lot of interesting uh, articles published recently about the opportunities around hiring freelancers and outsourcing different components and bringing in technology elements to do a lot of the work that advancement shops uh, need to do fundamentally. Uh, I think there's a lot lot going on there. I'm sure there's tons to be to be working on. And the data infrastructure, it kind of all starts with the ability to get data in, pull it out and make data-driven decisions. Uh, based on policy and based on strategy. And, you know, it sort of it makes sense to me, Brandon, that as coming in, you really look to that part of the middle of the organization to make sure it's uh, the scaffolding is in place uh, in a proper way. I, every once in a while, we throw out some uh, fill in the blank questions. We've actually gotten some feedback from folks that like, they really like fill in the blank questions. We don't do it every week, but just to get to know you a bit better, um, here's a question, a fill in the blank or a finish this sentence question, actually not fill in the blank. So an advancement program led by Brandon Busby is going to be known for X. Okay. Uh, I'll say three things. Aspiration, perspiration, and innovation. I would say those, we work hard. We uh, aspire to do things that haven't been done before, and we never let convention tie us to the way those things get done. I like it. And it, the perspiration is not just because it's 100 degrees in, in Texas. It's <laughs> it might it might be partly because it's 105 <laughs> degrees and unrelenting for months and months that it's it's happening. But, you know, in a place like Colorado, sweat is harder to come by. You really <laughs> earn your sweat in Colorado. So... <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed. I hope you've enjoyed the sweating <laughs> as much as possible. 
Uh, but Chris, let me throw it over to you. How have you uh, think about sort of the guiding values and principles that you've had when you were leading teams at Lehigh and Cornell? You know, what? How did you lean on the types of core values that Brandon was talking about? I'm, I'm going to go with aspiration, perspiration, and <laughs> I don't have such a good grand answer, but. Um, I think if I look back or to describe, I would I would say um, integrated in that I'm not shy about the fact that we need to lean in. And, and engagement is not just for the sake of engagement. It's for driving institutional priorities. And it could be, you know, four or five, six different things that are, that are measurable. I'll get to that in a second. But one of them we can't be shy about is the fact that engagement will impact giving. And for a long time, when I arrived, our industry had been sort of hiding behind the fact that we're the friend raisers. And that's, I mean, not everybody. I'm certainly people embrace this, but it, where we are today is a much different mindset as an industry where we're much more integrated. And I brought those both to those places, that sort of mindset and model of thinking of we're going to lean into the fundraising side in some way. So integrated, um, uh, measured. Uh, I, I came out, I spent 12 years as a collegiate swimming coach and we measured to the hundredth of a second, knew every stroke count and yard they swam. And or meter they competed in and so on. Um, when I got to alumni engagement in 01, I said, what's what's our scoreboard look like? What does success look like? And I didn't get a good answer. So I've been on a journey for 22 years, helping and including with Case, building an engagement scoring model that allows us to look. And it's not for the sake of comparing or competing. It's, it's showing that we're improving, uh, that there's a return on the investment. I call it ROE, return on that engagement. Um, so measurable outcomes is another one. But the, the third one, I would say, is something you mentioned already, Brandon, which is you know, I, I get criticized for being too scientific or metric driven, but what you commented on the art form at the end of the day, it's about building relationships with people and our work needs to be about that. I totally get that. But if we only say that and are only about the art form, the people who make decisions about where our resources come from will be less inclined to invest in that than they were to say, here's what we did and here's the impact that it had. So I'm big about that part, but also, you know, go back to the relationship part is key. Well, and Ryan, can I jump? I just want yeah, to jump please, in on yeah. something that Chris was saying. You know, Chris, I think um, one of the journeys that I've been on as a as a leader is, you know, I economics major from UCSD, home of econometrics, so <laughs> it was all about the numbers, right? Yeah, and right. I'm a very analytical, strategic person, and um, in my time in Denver, we were really building and honing and harnessing um, from alumni, getting alumni engagement metrics on the board to then developing a set of scoring mechanisms and all of that to understand more depth of engagement. Sure. Um, but in the midst of that, we found ourselves a little bit tied in knots because we were incentivizing and our staff would get tripped up because it was performing to the number Mm. In some, you know, you want a high performing accountable organization, sure, but the, the balance to that or the challenge in that is it's kind of, it's one of those both and um, challenges in the work of advancement. It is both high degrees of accountability and it's high degrees of connectivity and a, a depth of connection to what is it that we're actually trying to do and drive because and I'm thinking Howard Wolf here from Stanford. Um, <laughs> I've, I sat through many fierce debate, debates in the private college and university space that was about, you know, the role and value of metrics. And I think Howard's largely was on how, how do we really, what are we after? What, what are we trying to get to? 
And I think it's an important question for us to hold, hold yeah. us in tension as we're measuring everything is, yes, you may be putting ticks on the board, but are do they feel better about the institution? Do they feel, do they feel more engaged? Not do you track them as being more engaged, but does an alum right. actually right. Right. self-identify as being engaged? And so then you come in with tools and mechanisms like, um, you know, uh, an attitudinal survey population-wide every three to five years to help you kind of counterbalance some of that. But I just have struggled as a leader. It's like, yes, on one hand, you're right. There's a tension. You have to prove value and an ROE on everything you're doing on the engagement side. Um, and yep. you and also an have to make sure the staff are grounded. And I'll throw one other and in there too. And in the context of today's climate and attitudes about higher education, you throw that into the mix here and you have schools that are struggling to stay alive. So if you're at one of those schools, the work we're doing will be more scientifically bent and focused on what impact it's going to have on the, the investment that we're going to get out of it versus the art form of building relationships. Because some of these places are out there struggling for survival. So the other end in the equation is context of sort of where we are historically and in, in our, in our uh, you know, the way we view higher education as a, as a population. But but institutions who you know, every year we hear of schools that are closing down. And what does that mean for that alumni population? Howard talks about that, too. What will happen to the alumni population if the school were to close down? It's another great conversation. So much to talk about. And I think the idea yeah. of building relationships with alumni and the idea of getting more personalized with our technology and our engagement is part of the same conversation. You know, it's all one important connected strategy to reach our alumni in real time as they're moving forward in lives or if they want to look back or think back or travel back um, to be nimble with our content and our technology, our events and initiatives to provide that feeling of a relationship with the university. And that's part of why I really enjoy this work because it's it's challenging and it's fun and it feels like you're doing good. But, um, but we're going to continue this conversation with Brandon. We bumped up against the top of the show uh, already. It always goes by fast. So we're going to tackle um, some 30 minutes more with Brandon. We're really excited about that. Uh, we've got uh, thankful uh, for Protopia for sponsoring our first ever episode together in our partnership. And um, we will thank all of our listeners for joining us, picking up the podcast version or seeing us in a couple of weeks. We'll be back with Annie Quaddy from UTEP. I actually said Annie was this week. I misspoke. Uh, she is uh, in two weeks time from now. But we're staying and in Texas for two episodes in a that's row. That's true. <laughs> two episodes As you should. <laughs> Don't mess with Texas, right? Uh, but so for Chris and for Brandon, I'm right, Ryan signing you. off and we'll see you on the podcast edition. Bye, everybody. Hey, Chris. A couple of weeks ago, we were at a conference together in New York City and everyone was buzzing about how AI is going to play a role in shaping the future of advancement. Yeah, it's it was the clear theme of the conference and on everyone's mind. And when I'm at a conference like that, I do my best to talk to everybody I possibly can and hear what they're thinking. Everyone I talked to, and I had a list of 53 people I ended up bumping into or meeting with, AI was on everyone's mind. It was definitely interesting to hear the conversation about AI level up recently with ChatGPT coming into the news, because actually we've been talking about AI and machine learning with Max and the team at Protopia for the last few years now. Yeah, well, you know, when I looked at Protopia a couple of years ago, I was blown away by what it, it, was, it seemed like a huge leap forward in technology and how we engage with our alums and connect them with our students and our donors. 
Um, it, I think it's actually a great lead generation tool. I've been recommending it to my clients now for a couple of years, and it, it's a solution that should be investigated by everyone for sure. And I tell my, I try to stay agnostic, but I tell my clients, make sure you look at Protopia. It's transforming the way we think about and how we measure alumni engagement. And already that's why leaders at schools like Denison, LSE, Duke, Pitt, VCU, Florida State, and others have partnered with Protopia to use the power of AI to help students and alumni connect with each other. And we are psyched to have Protopia as our first presenting sponsor. Uh, to me, to me, it's a no brainer. If I were leading an alumni relations shop today, it would be one of the first things I would do would be to install this technology and have it connect our alums to each other and to our students. We recommend all alumless listeners head over to protopia.co forward slash alumless. That's P-R-O-T-O-P-I-A dot C-O forward slash A-L-U-M dash L-E-S-S and schedule a time to chat with the Protopia team. They'll be happy to talk shop for a few minutes and share more about their exciting AI powered technology. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the bonus section of Alumless. Glad that you could pick up the podcast and make it part of your work routine. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're back with Brandon Busby to continue the conversation. Brandon, we were talking uh, lots of different topics in the first half of the show, but uh, one question that we had had prepared but we didn't get to was asking you about what's next. We talked about some of the things that you've been addressing uh, early on at your tenure there at UNT. But uh, what do you think year number two is going to be like for you now that uh, you've chalked up some wins and been able to uh, focus on some of the blocking and tackling, if you will? Yeah, um, we have been working hard to repair foundational elements of what I believe make for a highly functional and sustainable advancement organization. And mainly, on the advancement services side, touching the culture of advancement, setting expectations for aspirations, helping our um, academic deans work through their philanthropic priorities and kind of laying the dominoes out to ensure that as we then turn on the switch to really get out and start seeing more of our constituents than we've ever seen before, um, that the team has a back-end support um, that's going to help them to do that. So year two really is moving from a base of solid analytics and operations to really empowering leadership that I've recently brought onto the team and holding the team accountable to running at a new clip and a new pace, um, seeing a different type of engagement from our alumni association, which at the moment is still dues paying. Um, and we are working through <laughs> our orientation, but I think it's really about uh, getting to work. Um, whereas year one was really about repairing a lot of the core elements that were going to hinder our, our frontline team's ability to get out and do the work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You mentioned a couple uh, working with deans as they're formulating their philanthropic priorities, you're developing relationships there and around campus. What would you say of the campus partnerships that you've been developing there at the at UNT? Uh, what are you most excited about? Um, I mean, definitely a partnership with the academy in um, as an as an R one. So if you look at the trend line of research expenditures at UNT, it since twenty fifteen has been on a sharp sharp increase. 
um, not only in the sciences, but in the arts as well. Um, and yet philanthropy hasn't tracked with that. And to me, as a Hispanic serving, minority serving institution, seeing this incredible growth in research expenditures and knowing the focal pivot of many large national foundations to ensure um, diverse talent is readily available to the marketplace in the future, that um, diversity in the sciences remains a, of critical importance. That positions us really well to be thoughtful about how we articulate this, the opportunity to support what already exists at UNT, not what we're aspiring to build, we're aspiring to do, like just take things off the shelf and say, we need your support here. And, and I think there's an incredible amount of opportunity that excites that partnership with the Academy. excites me. And then on the athletic side, um, new athletics director, um, who is just a, an incredibly collaborative partner. Um, I couldn't be more thrilled with where we're at in this moment. We're changing from conference USA to the American conference. And that has opened up not only a new, um, set of opportunities externally and a new set of markets for us to engage, but also internally, it's a whole new set of collaborative university partners. Our, uh, our alumni team has already met with all the alumni directors from the American conference. And we just, we didn't have that before. And so, you know, another partnership that I'm excited about is on the athletic side, as we grow, continue to grow and build out, um, that area, that advancement is tightly in line with, with that effort. Quick follow up on that one at, at DU. It was it was hockey. It was the main like signature sport. No football and lacrosse and, and lacrosse. lacrosse. But right. yes, hockey and lacrosse. Hockey and lacrosse. Hockey and lacrosse. Um, now you have a, a football program to to work with and a when basketball you, program that won the NIT this year. So that really? so I mean, yeah. fundamentally, it's like tons of opportunities yeah. around. How do you size up that new that difference, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that we always talked about at Denver was, man, even if our basketball team was a 16 seed and then the NCAA tournament, that gets arguably more eyes or as many eyes as the national championship for hockey, um, just because of the orientation of the sport. And I will tell you, I was, I, I worked at UC San Diego, no football team, Denver, no football team. Football in the South is serious business um, and to see tens of thousands <laughs> of people carrying your gear, wearing your gear, cheering for your university, seeing the green brigade, which is hundreds of our students marching in, in university colors. It's a whole nother thing. Like it's a, and so tailgate Saturdays and, you know, being in a football stadium with 14 suites where our top donors are all there at the same time means I see about two minutes of football during the entire season <laughs> because I'm just going from suite to suite, having conversations, understanding where things are highly efficient. It's an incredible attribute, you know, thing to have, um, you know, but the challenge is, you know, if you're, if your team and we, we had a, a good season, we got into a bowl game this last year, a lot of enthusiasm around our new coach and a lot of energy around that program. Um, I can imagine how that can also work the other direction if the team isn't doing well. Fortunately, we haven't been in that place where we've had to be managing that in the most recent history. But, um, yeah. you know, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. It's when winning is is galvanizing, when you're not winning, right, it's deflating and, and it's almost like a vacuum, you know. Uh, I'm, hopefully you never have to encounter that. 
at you. I'll do my right? best, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Send the coach some uh, plays in from the from the, yeah, from yeah. the, from the press box. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I will tell you they don't appreciate that. I know. I know from uh, <laughs> stories being shared with me that um, they feel pretty secure about their play calling abilities. <laughs> Well, one, Brandon, one of the unique aspects of your history as a professional in our space is your leadership of the global networks team at DU. And one of the unique aspects of that team was the presence of the career services unit, employer relations as part of advancement. Uh, I wanted to make sure to ask you about it because it still remains, there's some momentum of schools that continue to merge career under advancement and really be focused on that. But now that you're at a university that sort of doesn't have that alignment in place, I wondered if you might just talk a little bit about how you reflect on it and its importance from DU and how you think about that career piece when it comes to engaging alumni and its, and its importance of having that unit or, uh, nearby, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I, I still 100% of fan and, and advocate that I, I believe that that's the right synergy that should exist regardless of institution type or size. I will say we've got our hands full uh, at, at UNT. I mean, we've got we've got a whole lot of work to do to catch up to where we should be in the fundraising space and in the engagement space. Yeah. That um, I think if your alumni shop is staffed well, if you're embedded inside of the academic units, um, it gives you an opportunity to think about the impact you can have on the space. Unique to private institutions. The proximity of the alumni community and the scale that most private institutions operate at offer a uniquely potent set of connections um, because there's an expectation coming to a private institution that you have access, readily available access to a high value network. That is something that many publics um, work to build, are working to build. I know a number of the UCs have those networks. They have affinity networks embedded inside of industries that students have high degrees of interest to go into. I think the challenge at large publics is scale. You have, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 students. You have to clip at a certain rate to serve the vast majority of your students. And so, you know, especially at that scale, it is not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's a and, and, and solution. It's alumni engagement at the table carrying some of that water. It's student student life bringing scale because they, they serve students in that capacity. It's also the academy carrying some of that water and weight. Um, how embedded is career development inside of the academic units, regardless if it's basic sciences or a more applied um, ac academic discipline, um, it's got to be kind of local, national, global, or local, federal, global. Um, and I think the the institutions that are going to thrive the most in the future in this space will figure out some triangulation of all three of those elements needing to be absolutely present, present and fully leaned in in that model. I, I would think that at the scale you're talking about that, we would look at the alumni population to help carry some of that water too, of course, because there's, there's plenty of people out there with expertise that can be part of a career community to support the needs of somebody who's trying to enter that same community. And for, yeah, I agree. I totally agree with you. Unfortunately, I think um, there's two things that have hindered an ability to leverage that scale in a clearly effective and efficient manner. 
you know, you you think about schools like USC or Notre Dame, the the scale that they operate out of their volunteers is unbelievable. Yeah, staff yeah. to volunteer. You're right. I mean, you're, you're right. talking one or two staff for hundreds or thousands of volunteers that are really moving the needle locally in a somewhat traditional chapter or club model. That model, so we figured out how to get scale to work. I don't think we figured out how to get it fully back on campus in the same way that, like, can you get the same enthusiasm for a student meetup as you get for a watch party? Can you get this, you know, gotcha. and mentorship yeah. is, good point. Yep. you know, the, it's, it's a challenge because yep. you can get alumni there. Can you get students there? Yep. And so I, I never had a student ask for a mentor in the years <laughs> that I ran the career center, you know, it was, where's my job or where's my internship and the alums like, what, maybe I could help you with that, but I'm not sure I can help you with that. I'll be your mentor. And so there's like the student wants the transaction and the little bits of advice, whereas the alums, like, I want to be your mentor. you know, it's, it's a tricky a setup, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I, but I agree with you, Chris, I think you're hundred percent right. The scales work appropriately. The programming I still don't think, I think we've chipped away at bits and pieces, but like apply absolutely for us, 400,000 alumni, apply that to 40,000 students. That's a 10 to one ratio that should work all day long. Right. <laughs> but when your engagement rate or your giving rate is 2%, 3%, I think we're forced to be honest about how deep are we penetrated in terms of our engagement and how, you know, so, um, I agree. It keeps me up at night, Chris. I, I'm passionate about <laughs> it. And it, I, it kills I, me that we can't figure this out like in a snap. I'm, I'm really I, curious about this because uh, off script here. So if I throw a curveball at you, can, we can cut it out later. But I, don't, I, I can hit curveballs. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 how long have you been there now? Has it been a year fully? A year. Okay. So in, in your you know announcement and arrival and then on campus for a year, if I'm the center, the career center director, Right. I, I'm overseeing the career services operation at UNT and I hear you're coming. I'm going to go, hmm, <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen here if there's going to be a move. Fast forward now that you're there. Have you had conversations like this? Is it off the table? Is it something we'll get to maybe later because we have other things we got to get address? How would you characterize it? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been um, both the VP of Student Life and I have had conversations. The president and I have had conversations. Um so what I've, I, in terms of order of operations, we've got to broaden yep. our reach yep. for alumni engagement. We've got to improve alumni giving. We've, we've got to build corporate and foundation relations in a way that um, can make sense of the scale of the institution. Um, and as those elements come into play, we also are operating with a fairly traditional 501c3 alumni association that's not embedded inside of academic units. And going into a campaign, we're going to need yeah. A, yeah. a little bit more local knowledge and ability to engage our alums in a non-athletic capacity. Yeah. And so the diversification, so all that kind of, you can trace those mile markers down the road to say, okay, embedded alumni team operating at scale with an engaged base now I can deliver value into yeah. this conversation about yeah. career. I I will say our student population and the focus of the president has been we are we are career ready. The percentage of our students going to graduate school is different than uh, many private institutions or large public research institutions. And so there's a career readiness reality that we face, period. Um, and I think the intent is down the road, but 
these mile markers are yeah, not insignificant yeah. ones yeah. to to move. Yeah. And leaning what you said was really important was leaning in on the faculty as well, because, you know, ultimately they're the ones that can layer it on top of their courses and require students to hear these narratives or visit the career center. Right. That's right. And the role of so, Chris, the, the interesting intersection, Ryan, the interesting intersection here is adjunct faculty that are alums. They, they know I mean, they're at the middle of it. Right. Applied knowledge, alum affinity. Um, and an, a knowledge of your of students and what students think culture what all that think. right yeah yeah um so you know if i were to say where's your beachhead it's building connectivity and affinity with your alumni adjunct faculty as mm. a starting point yeah i want to pivot to a, a, a background question that i think it's relevant to what you're doing now but before we go there if you um need a consulting company that has experience in thinking about Alumni associations, broader alumni engagement strategies. I know one for you. Okay. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> I want to go back to a DU experience that you had. So it's a little thing called the Kennedy uh, Mountain Campus. You were instrumental working with a major donor uh, and bringing that about. Uh, tell us what it is, a little background for the listeners. And what did you learn, take away that you're applying today to this work? Absolutely. Kennedy Mountain Campus um, is something that I'll be so proud of being connected to my entire career. Um, it is so the University of Denver has an urban campus, 150 acres, um, and now has an additional element to it. That's an outdoor campus, 700 acres in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado that delivers to every student an experience in nature. Um, it's a nod to the sense that we're more than just um, a student. We're human beings being formed as we go through university. And the mountain campus is the largest classroom at the university to really enable some of that leadership development, that character development, um, and leaning into the four-dimensional um, student that Chancellor Hafner has articulated as a differentiator at the University of Denver. Um, what didn't I learn by being a part of that project? It was... <laughs> So wildly interesting. I mean, hundreds of miles on my car driving through back roads in Colorado, trying to find the right fit of property that met the aspirations of the chancellor, the, the aspirations of the board of trustees, um, the aspirations of our donors, and was a good fit from a risk and uh, liability perspective. And um, it was also a, a, a good fit for our student population. And uh, there were so many moments of twist and turns and being, you know, two inches from the finish line and then backing off. And then, <laughs> you know, these things take so much time. I mean, that was probably 24 months from initial conversation to the announcement of it, it being a reality, which at, relatively is probably quick. Um, but, um, you know, learning with a, how to work with a faculty senate learning how to work with our yeah. faculty, learning how to work with academic leaders and um, the inception and induction of a new idea um, into the institution that, you know, and it's fair not, right? There's always criticism about any big initiative and effort that took money away from me, right? Yeah, right. And I think as advancement professionals, we know it's not a zero sum game. It's not like the donor was thinking, do I give this to the College of Business or giving this to um, this new initiative. No, it was like this idea or no idea. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that's hard to understand if you're not in those conversations and in the work, but I learned 
how to navigate between all those circles of individuals and to the important moments and movements of, you know, who do you bring in when, how do you have those conversations? How do you cast a vision that's bold and ambitious um, that needs substantial resources and just doesn't pencil without philanthropic investment. So um, I, I appreciated the way in which that whole project helped me learn how to navigate inside and outside of the university with a really complex set of ideas that are fairly nebulous until they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it, what occurred to me is uh, the next question I'm going to ask you is about that kind of experience being a prerequisite for someone who's moving from the alumni to a vice president role for advancement. But I could even see a question to you during an interview uh, when you're looking at the role you're in right now. Can you tell us about a time when you had an experience working with a project and it touched everything. I mean, there, that was a perfect example. I mean, uh, what you just shared, what a complex, yeah. but after <laughs> fun, frustrating, all of the above, right? <laughs> yeah, no, highs and lows, heartbreak, and, and it just... I remember getting the call from uh, Chancellor Hafner that the donor had expressed um, his thumbs up to that this was the right property and we were moving forward. I mean, just there's nothing more exhilarating than being part of something that, you know, 100 years from now, that thing's still a part of the mission of the institution. Um, So, yeah, it's what. Yeah. What a thrill. And it was that taste, that taste of being a part of a project like that, that was what caused me to be think about and consider becoming a VP at a, at an institution that was had big aspirations because I, you know, it it was not a statement about the university of Denver at all. I just, I got so much of that taste in my mouth that it was like, I want to do that again. And I want to, I want (laughs) to be a part of that every day. But uh, so that's a pretty complex. I mean, what a great entree for somebody you know, launching in a career like that. But what would you say are the prerequisites for somebody in the alumni engagement space to move? Someone who's thinking, so, let's say someone's listening right now and they're alumni engagement professional and they say to themselves, well, shit, I want to be a, a vice president someday. What are the things that we should be telling that person to think about doing? Um, you know, I think. Um, the things that they're probably already doing that they need to continue to hone and and continue to get stronger at is developing relationships and learning how to bring someone's commitment to fruition at the institution. That could be for a volunteer project or initiative. It could be for a philanthropic project or initiative. So on the what's core and germane to the work of alumni engagement, the relationship business is absolutely core. Right. In addition to that, there is a technical component to the work of fundraising that you absolutely have to know. And part of that, yes, is crafting a gift agreement, understanding how you work from a cultivation to a solicitation. What does quality stewardship look like? I think you need to have your eyes open to that. You need to have gone through some scalable and sizable experience of having done that. And, and, um, having navigated the complexity and the hiccups that come with that. Cause I will tell you no gift is, I mean, there's a, there's a per small, smaller percentage of gifts that are just straightforward and you sail through and it's first ask is a yes. And you, you got it right. The first time around the bigger, the numbers, the, the longer that timeline gets, yeah. the more complex it gets, the more negotiations you have. And then I would say the other thing, Chris is, um, 
a commitment and curiosity to data and analytics in the advancement yeah. space. I think right. yeah. in, for the ne next generation of advancement leaders, you need to have an appreciation and understanding of what a contemporary advancement services shop looks like because it will accelerate or hinder your ability to lead an operation that's clipping at the rate that an, a president expects you to clip at. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would say the technical experience is important and, and a prerequisite. The rest of it, you have to have, you can garner that experience in the context of alumni engagement, but um, those shops and those experiences vary from institution to institution. So appreciate the complexity that comes with a variety of institutions and, and lean into that complexity. Yeah. So, so keep doing what you're doing, relationship building, understand the details, the art and science that goes with that, but understand the fundraising mechanics up from annual all the way through major, but understanding the data and the data science behind either side of it from an advancement services. I mean, those are great three check marks. Would you suggest this? Like, I, I don't believe that every alumni officer should have a small portfolio to manage. I don't believe that's right. But I think if someone has an interest in this area, I would say, here's a dozen prospects, maybe members of your board or however you want to slice and dice it. Do you think that would be a helpful step in someone's journey on this? Absolutely. And I think, but I think they have to think about why, right? Mm -hmm. it, absolutely for professional development. Um, but the individuals, oftentimes individuals will confide in you as an okay. alumni professional, especially point, right? if you're yeah. leading the alumni shop, they're going to confide in you because your role doesn't have the word development in it. Right. Exactly. Um, and little do they know, like you're on the same team. Right? <laughs> like they so, often will complain to you about their gift officer who asked them this or that. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, they're supposed to do that. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think that's the, the tension is don't just take the people that are coming to you to complain and vent about, and think that you're the magician that can somehow flip that relationship. Cause that's actually the wrong or it's yeah. like, start with a portfolio that you're going to have to cultivate. Cause you're going to learn a lot. Great point. Those may be yeah. new alumni board members. They may be volunteers that have capacity. And, um, I think your ability to collaborate, um, so whether or not you carry a portfolio, who gets credit can sometimes trip you up. And I think the ability to have the option to carry one or not carry one allows you to be a part of the process and get your colleagues a win in a way that will help you down right. the road, but also yep. help them. Yep. John Wooden, great UCLA basketball coach, said, it's amazing what can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. <laughs> love that. I used to have oh, the wall in my office as, as a swimming coach. <laughs> I love that. Well, to, to wrap up the show, gentlemen, hard to believe time flies, but uh, we're going to try a new segment for our listeners. Uh, this is called the Friday Cheers segment. And what is it? What is Friday Cheers? Well, it's if you on a Friday, it is Friday. Generally, when folks are listening to us, let's pretend it's you know later in the day. It's it's happy hour time. You're you're out with your colleagues. These are things that are maybe still work-related, maybe they're personally related, but these are things that you might share with your colleagues in a conversation. And we're each week, we're going to bring to the Friday Cheers segment something that we've been talking about, something that we've been thinking about, and share them with our listening audience. So Brandon, why don't you go ahead and go first on your Friday Cheers? So my uh, my happy hours, Ryan, I, I like to have uh, deep um, substantive conversations, uh, that cause my brain to kind of tingle a little bit. And so, uh, mine really is inspired by, 
Um, I would say one of the more exciting sessions that came out of uh, Case Summit um, in the dialogue and conversation with the U.S. News and World Report uh, team um, about the role and value of rankings in higher education. Um, I will say that it, we're in a unique moment in time, and there's an article on um, Higher Ed Dive um, it, that I think captures the landscape fairly well. Um, you've got, on one hand, elite private institutions that have been um, in the news in recent years or re in the past year around their role in you know touching the rankings. And then on the other side, you have those that have been left at the bottom and really challenging the question, what's the mission of higher ed and what's the role of rankings in expressing that mission? So I'll, I'll throw that out there for a good happy hour conversation. If you're, if you're a certain magazine company, your, your role in that is I want to sell as many magazines as possible, could care less about methodology or approach or what it really tells. So. Well, we'll put that link that Brandon mentioned to the higher ed dive article in the show notes. And uh, I think that was a really interesting conversation. People were buzzing about it at the conference. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, Chris, what's yours as you're thinking about happy hour conversations Friday afternoon with colleagues? What are you What are you thinking about? I had I had this conversation yesterday. I, I was at a so it's coming out of the case summit. I went to the um, the session that Armin and um, Brent Grinna did uh, on artificial intelligence and um, the conversation. One of the questions they asked the group was, "How many people know or have been experienced with ChatGPT?" Two hundred people in the room. I think maybe ten percent raised their hand. The other 90% had not even thought about using it. And then the, the whole conversation went on about AI more broadly, but ChatGPT was a piece of it. And uh, so I was at a conference yesterday and I asked a group of 100 people, how many of you have had experience with ChatGPT? And 10 people, 10, same thing, 10% raised their hand. And uh, I shared this story with Ryan. I had put into uh, ChatGPT, uh, I was facilitating a panel on digital engagement and the future of our industry around in digital. And I put into ChatGPT, um, give me questions, ask a panel about digital engagement, the future for alumni engagement. It came up with 12 questions that were spot on. I was like, Shut <laughs> up a that's not good, right? It's not good for me as a consultant of an AI tool can give it to in four seconds. Uh, but we used the question as a basis to have the conversation. So uh, my, so we ended up having uh, drinks, dinner afterwards with a group of people. And this came up, this, whole, this, this discussion was part of that cocktail conversation about what's the AI going to be like. And there are people who are like, don't touch it. It's like crack, don't even once. You know, if you start it once, you're going to be addicted and you're never going to. And others were like, no, we got to embrace it and use it and, you know, use it as part as a starting point, et cetera. So mine is an article on um, what is this chat GPT all about and what do you need to know? So we'll put that link in as well. Yeah, I plugged in. I, I had an article draft and I plugged it into chat GPT. And I was like, make this better and make it designed for an alumni engagement audience. And it did it. Uh, and then I told it, to, then I told it to decrease it by 20% because it was too long and it did it right. It was, it was like really amazing. I was blown away, but, uh, my Friday cheers is I often think a lot about, uh, our data being available to universities. And I, this is because, uh, I have done a project where a university is like, we want to do know our alumni outcomes and we want to know, be able to create a website that shows what alumni have done after college. So we want to acquire technology that gives us all of this updated information on what alumni are doing, where they're living, how much money they make. Uh, and the truth of it is, is your profile, Chris, your profile, my profile, we are all available for purchase by any university that wants it. There's technology vendors out there. I actually was reading this article on Inside Higher Ed about um, 
labor market data playing a key role in higher ed and universities are really looking towards this data that's now much more available to help make decisions and help drive program development. But uh, Rutgers University did a study on it and they noticed that actually community colleges were much more uh, adept and used to using this labor market data than were four-year institutions. And I thought that was a really interesting thing in the article, but it got me thinking about how our data is available anywhere to anyone who wants it. You just need to pay for it sometimes handsomely. Uh, but, um, I hope, uh, hope everybody had a good episode. Did everybody have a good episode, Chris, Brandon? You you have a thousands episode? of people cheered when yeah. you asked that question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll wrap things up. I hope everyone enjoyed our Friday cheers section. We'll try to keep it up. I think I like it. Fun. Great. Yeah. Keep things spicy at the end of our, each episode. Brandon, and thank uh, thanks so for much. joining us. Fantastic. Yeah, thank work. you. Well done. I appreciate, appreciate the chance to talk shop a little bit. 30th uh, on the on the broadcast but first to do the Friday cheer so that's right. and in Chris Marshall's heart <laughs> <laughs> uh, well you're gonna need to hire us Brandon in order to be first honestly. Oh, that's that's fair that's fair that's, that's the reality of, you pay for uh, your friends right you got friendships on all of the things <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for our friends at Protopia for sponsoring Alumless. And we'll see you in two weeks with Annie Quaddy from UTEP. Have a good weekend. Thank you all.